is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our last dispatches from the home garden, we heard from a young gardener experiencing her first garden dislocation relocation. This week, in many ways in honor of Father's Day, we hear from another home gardener, this time in New Jersey. And this time, the gardener is working the same land her parents and grandparents cultivated before her, and which she and her husband, with the steady help and mentorship of her father, became the fourth generation of her family to steward this land after her uncle died and the property went on the market. The 20 years since taking on the family farm has seen a lot of hard work, the restoration of some elements of the homestead and the re-envisioning of other elements. Barns have been stabilized, old rose borders are now mixed perennial beds, and what was once an outbuilding is now our home gardener's writing studio. Her father has now died. Other things, including the legacy and spiritual presence of her father, have remained reassuringly similar. Sometimes our gardens are adventure stories in which we are on a vision quest to find out who we are. Sometimes they are our anchors to windward, in which they are reminding us who we are and where we came from. Sometimes they are both. I'll let this week's dispatches from the home garden gardener take it from here. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Ryder Zebarth. I live at Cedar Ridge Farm in Bedminster, New Jersey, which is about 42 miles west of New York City in a small, rural, pre-revolutionary town um, with a population of about 8,000. We have a ton of open space here. It's mostly farmland, orchards, hay fields, horse farms, and I am 62 years young. I've done so many things, but I began my life as my career as a writer. Uh, Out of college, I was a journalist. But as um, at the time, I wanted to work in New York City, and newspapers were not hiring. That was 1978. They were not hiring women. So I went into public relations, and I stayed in that field for a good 25 years. And then I became a mom, and um, I did a number of different things as a mother. I did some interior design work. I did some special event work. Um, but eventually after my daughter graduated from college and was on her own, I circled back to writing. And as a 59 year old, I entered, uh, a master's program for creative nonfiction. And now I'm a writer again, which is really what I've always wanted to be. And I've been a writer now for seven years. I also am associate editor for Typharet Literary Journal, which is based here in Bernersville, New Jersey. It's a nice literary journal that promotes tolerance and peace. I also do um, a lot of work with the Nantucket Book Festival. Where did you grow up, Ryder? I actually grew up on this farm. Um, I um, was born in 1955. And my grandparents bought this farm, uh, which was then a 300-acre estate in 1940. It was part of a 1,000-acre estate at the time. And my grandfather and grandmother lived in nearby Montclair, New Jersey. He loved to hunt and fish. And this was his summer retreat, although it was about maybe 20 miles from Montclair. 
And he finally convinced my grandmother that he wanted to live out here for good, which she was loath to do being a city girl from Montclair. But he did. He moved her out. Um, my, my father was a teenager at the time. And my great-grandparents came with them for a while and then eventually spent their summers here as well. And um, I was born here uh, in 55, my brother in 53. My sister was seven years later, but that makes my daughter fifth generation to live in this house. And what did your father and mother do that encouraged them to stay on the farm and bring their family up there? Well, dad and mom met here in New Jersey. My mother is from Cranford. Um, they met riding, unbelievably. Um, and, um, they married nearby, both their families being close. And um, my grandparents offered my parents the greenery, which is out back of the big haymow. And my dad was a mechanical engineer. My mother was an artist. And they said, have at it. And dad and mom built the granary into a darling little two-bedroom cottage by themselves every night after work. And that's where I was raised, in the back of a barn, basically. And so tell us the story of how it then became your family home, Ryder. Well, um, we moved from this farm uh, where there was just always family around from New Jersey, always family, cousins and aunts and uncles and Everybody, we, my grandmother was loath to let us go, but she did. And we moved to Connecticut for dad's work in 1967. My mother still lives in Connecticut, and my brother eventually settled there as well with his family. Um, I ended up in New York City, which is where I met my husband, and we were living there for 20 years. And the last living relative here was my father's brother. And at that point, the estate was owned by the three children, my father, his sister, and brother. And when my Uncle Carl died at the memorial service, my father turned to Michael and I, the only two, um, the only, I was the only one of his children that did not have a, a home, a house. We were apartment dwellers in New York. And he said, why don't you two buy the farm? which I thought my, was going to scrape my husband off the floor. <laughs> and um, we thought, well, you know, we have a five-year-old. She was, had gone through preschool in New York City. It was, you know, it was, we thought, okay, time to raise our daughter in the country. And we quickly had the house inspected and, you know, got everything together. And here we are, many cans of paint later. So how many years ago was that now? 21 years in August. And talk about, um, because I think this is important to your story, talk about the role that your father um, played from the time you decided to say yes and move forward to, to now. Well, Dad, of course, as Mom, was thrilled. I, it was everyone loved this farm and always have loved this farm. It holds so many memories of people and good times and holidays and get-togethers. It was always the place that we all returned to, um, especially for Christmas time, um, right through 
all the all the decades that we've owned it. So when it came for sale, for sale when Uncle Carl died, everyone was devastated. I mean, we never dreamed that anyone in the family would ever own it again. So, of course, Dad was just thrilled that another family member was going to take it over. So he was very hands-on with us. Um, he came down from Connecticut on the weekends, and we just, especially for the outside of the house, we we started with that, really. We, we hand-cranked up the barns to hold them in place. There were 11 outbuildings and 30 acres is what we inherited uh, out of 16 outbuildings and 300 acres that were originally with the property. Mm-hmm. And we started to just whack it brush. This place had not been touched outside in probably 25 years. Hmm. And it was just filled with briars and honeysuckle and overgrowth of every kind imaginable. Just basically the grass had been cut and that was it. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine 30 years of overgrowth, 30 acres of overgrowth for 25 years. So we started a brush pile, dad and I and Michael out in one of the back fields that grew to about, I'd say, 40 feet in height <laughs> in a matter of no time. And we do things like, Dad did things like help me scale cedar trees to cut dead branches, and we resurrect. He showed me where the old gardens were when I was a little girl, and maybe I'd want to put one back here, and let's think about taking this old garden out because it wasn't doing any good and nothing was growing in it and you know things like that it was really really fun to do it with him mm-hmm. by my side give us a visual description of what it looks like now so this house was built in the 17th century it's we basically think it was built in about mm, 1785 the town was incorporated in 1745. So it was a little square cattleman's homestead. And it was added on to over the years. It was added on to again in 1820 and added again when my grandparents bought it in 1940. So it was sort of a mishmash of stuff. But when when the war was over and people had a little bit of money, the house was basically went from a cattleman's home into more of a um, Greek revival. So if you walk out of our front door now, which faces one of the main roads, you look out over onto a big sweeping hayfield of 10 acres, and it's under a porch with four columns. And that's it's a beautiful view. And from there, if you walk around to the west side of the house, I've created a big shade garden under the big cedar that dad helped me uh, clear out. And in that shade garden are just a tremendous variety of fern that actually Dad and I went roadside collecting here in New Jersey and in Connecticut. We went into the woods and we would dig up all kinds of fern and trillium, trout lily, jack in the pulpit. Um, I have cinnamon fern in there. I have all sorts of stuff. And we would come back and and plant them. And we started this bed that just you know, fern is is a wonderful propagator, so mm. it's full of that. I have added in wild ginger um, and lily of the valley, which of course is now taken over and is half half of my lawn is lily of the valley mm-hmm. that I pluck out. Um, I've added Virginia bluebell, um, Solomon seal. I have boxwood in there for structure. Um, 
I have lots of hellebore in there, um, dicentrum, bleeding heart, um, some may apple I'm trying to get to propagate, mm. um, Japanese red fern. And um, it's just a beautiful, I have some old, um, pretty Japanese pagodas that my uncle left for me there um, that I sort of inherited with the house. And it's just a very zen place to sit. I made a little pathway leading to a big old slab of stone I found in the back barn and set it on two cedar stumps, uh, which dad helped me, <laughs> helped me uh, do too. And those are the days I could lift heavy things. I can't quite do that now. but um, And then I also propagated some lilac in there wow. and put a rhododendron in. So that's one of my favorite gardens. It's just very much of a shade bed. And then if you continue along around that corner of the house where there's a big Miss Kim's lilac, which is blooming right now. It's very, very fragrant. I was out last night letting the dogs out and just the smell of it from 50 feet away was mm. just overwhelming. There is um, a smokehouse, uh, I'm sorry, a pump house, which is a very small little brick structure uh, where we have a thousand gallon well um, with tanks, big tanks. And it's just this charming little like dwarf house almost. It looks <laughs> like a, something out of a fairy tale under a huge one of a pair of linden trees that mm. flank our driveway. And there's a stone wall there. So it makes this garden two tiered. And that garden was my great grandmother's rose bed. And later my grandmother's rose and hollyhock bed. And then my uncle's vegetable garden, and now my perennial bed. So when I moved in, um, I had some landscapers help me reorient that bed into a sunset-colored perennial bed. And I try to stick only with perennials. I actually never have. I don't think I've ever put an annual in there. And I try very hard to get it to bloom consistently. August is a little tough. It looks a little green in August, but we try. <laughs> There's always that pause, right? When Always um, that yeah, pause, in, yes. in between schemes, um, no matter how hard we try, I think. Right. The description of that space starting as your great-grandmother's rose bed and then moving forward brings up what is clearly a strong theme running through your um, taking on this this house and and these acres of gardens and agricultural crops, which I think is predominantly hay. But that theme is one of the historical connection. And talk a little bit about that the importance of that to you and maybe the importance of it starting and then how that has deepened for you in the last uh, couple of years that, yeah. Well, history, history and family have always been very important to me. I've, I've always um, been interested in history, and I have always had a strong family connection. We've um, always been close as a family, and, and, and an extended family as well. So um, having the opportunity to come back to the, the place where I grew up, this was a big black Angus farm. 
And not only, my grandfather was a gentleman farmer, we had people run it, but we had pigs, horses, chickens, ducks, pheasant, goats. I mean, it was just fun. Mm -hmm. We had the haying season, we had a hayloft, we had outbuildings, piggeries where we made forts and played war and army, and I was always the nurse, of course. We had two little boys down the road that we played with constantly, and it was just an ideal life. It was just idyllic. The mm. only time we knew to come home was when my grandmother rang a big black bell by the back door, and then we knew it was supper time, and we had to drop everything and come home, but I don't think my mother and father ever knew where we were, really. They knew we were somewhere within the 300 acres, but right. they didn't know where. Well, they're fine. They're on the farm, right? Exactly. They're, <laughs> they're somewhere on the farm. They're either down at the Smalley house or they're at our house. Who knows? And I mean, we literally got on horses and just went or our bikes. Yeah. And to have the opportunity to raise my daughter in a similar way was just such a gift. Talk about that as a as a process because – on one on one hand, I can see that as being this wonderful opportunity to try to recreate what you had, but also a little bit of a bind of like how how closely do I have to stay to what it was or 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 what I imagined it was in my head and and how do you then hold on to that essence but still keep it yours? How do you approach well, that? well we did we did recreate things i mean the some of the outbuildings that are close to the house, um, there's a smokehouse right outside the back door, which faces south, that houses a generator that is powers the house. We have a lot of microbursts now that climate changes made our um, storms so much more fierce here. So we installed a generator there. Um, there was a farmhand's bunkhouse when hay season came. We hired more hands to help with the haying. That became Lizzie's playhouse which is now actually the shack that I write in now that she's living on her own. So that became hers. Um, the garage was a place where they slaughtered cattle. That became a prop for my wisteria that grows all the way around the garage and the bunkhouse. And that is now a beautiful place instead of a place that was really kind of gross when I was little. Um, one of the outbuildings was a stable then my uncle's office, and now it's a cottage for guests that we um, turned it into. It's a charming little place. So all of these places that were things when I was young became things that were that are now Michael and my own touches have made them very much ours. Mm -hmm. um, but the house was the last thing we renovated. We really put all of our energies into making sure that the barns didn't fall down because they're historic. They're all hand and, and post being uh, built. They're all pegged by mm -hmm. hand. And we had uh, Mennonites come down from New York State and hand crank them back into place. It was important for us to keep what was left standing and uh, keep the basic footprint of the farm in place. And the very last thing we did was work on the house. And... We just kind of modernized it a little bit. We did not change the house really much at all. We put in some new windows, things like that. But basically, it became the same place, but very much ours mm -hmm. in in feel. That human ability to adapt and evolve, right? Right, exactly. Freshen so, up. Yeah. 
And so you are currently on how many acres? Uh, 30 acres that we um, just recently uh, gave to farmland preservation. And how long ago did your father die? Dad died um, in 2014. I was in my first year of my MFA at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Um, So consequently, all of my writing became about dad's death and um, his memory and my connection to him on this farm. And so I'm actually working on a book right now. I just got through the first draft, which each where each chapter opens in the garden with my father uh, in 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 a month of the year. Mm. So it will probably be we we're thinking right now, 12 months of the year in the garden with dad and my reflections on on how he and I relate to nature in that way. So it was I can't say it was cathartic writing it, um, but it kept him very much alive for me for the past two years, which was kind of nice. Yeah. And that ability of a garden, even as we move through them, at least in my experience, you have a very unique experience of, of having a life that has so much history in one place, whereas I am like a turtle and I carry my history around and then I put it each, you know, each new garden I go to, I put this little thing from my mother there, and and these plants represent my grandmother, and um, you know. But they they do have this un um, this beautiful way of being able to hold on to some notion of the people we have loved and who've who've kind of grown us as gardeners ourselves. Oh, I hear him when I'm out in the gardens. I hear him every day. There's a there's a chestnut tree that's just beyond me here that I'm looking at now that he used to help me climb when I was a little girl. I've made another shade bed under that, and he gave me he and mom gave me a bench, a cement bench, for that so that I could look out over into the into into our apple orchard. I mean there are there are marks of my parents here all over. I my husband is from a nearby town and he. He understands. He's been very generous about this being so much of my family's place. He's been really a sport about, I think, my calling this my home way too many times. But it's it's become very much our house, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's. But but I must say that my dad is really with me every time I go out, step outside yeah. of the door. Do you have a favorite time of year in this garden, writer? I I have to say it's spring. I have to say it's May right now. Right now. May and June. It's just comes alive. One thing after the next in the state of New Jersey is just so wonderful for that. Because you've got, you start with your snowdrops and your crocus and your muscularity and your little spring ephemerals, my trillium pop up and then your rhododendron comes out and your iris and then your peonies and it just is the most glorious my favorite book as a child was the secret garden mm-hmm. and it's it's very much like that the birds life starts to come and everything is like a like a symphony outside and then you get the fragrant smells with all the bloom, the lilac come and the forsythia have gone, and then 
the spirea come and then it's just it's just incredible i think this time of year is is almost magic mm-hmm. it's almost magical so it has to, i have to say it's this time of year yes springtime okay. and do you have a favorite time of day in in your gardens two times two times i'm i'm an early riser the birds get me up <laughs> so um i have six foot ceilings in my bedroom and a set of French doors, two little tiny French doors that are five feet tall. And I open them up and in the summertime and the birds just are practically sitting on my head in the morning. And so I'm awake at usually about four thirty, five o'clock. And sometimes I will get up and go out and walk around outside and I'll deadhead um, at that early hour. It's just lovely. There's no other sound except for the birds and the dogs sniffing around. And then the other favorite time for me is dusk, when you get that beautiful light that comes down. And sometimes if there's a storm, you'll get that gorgeous backlight, yeah. that sort of dark light that just glow, everything will glow in the, in the light of it. I, I normally like to ask my home gardeners, how does a garden reflect you as a person? Well, I think that's easy. This is this is a farm house. This is a and I'm I'm a farm girl. <laughs> Although I lived for 20 years in New York and was very much a socialite, I my grandmother used to say to me, "What are you doing in New York? You're a country girl." And I'd say, "No, no, Omi, I'm not. I'm a city girl." She said, "No, you're not." And I finally decided, "No, I'm really not. <laughs> I really <laughs> am a country girl." And I've been my happiest that I've ever been out here again. And um, so this garden is, is I, I'm German. My background is German and British. And so my garden is immaculate. Um, and, and that's what I love doing. I love seeing it perfect. I'm out there every day. I'm deadheading. I'm, there's not a blade of grass <laughs> anywhere. Sometimes I find I have to apologize for that because people come over and they go, oh my God, this is just too perfect. I mean, this is just, you know, and I, I get embarrassed, but it's just what I love to do. I love to look at it and I love to see it perfect. And it's three acres of perfection. But that being said, it's informal. It's not a formal garden. There are no, you know, um, fancy hedges or, um, beautiful waterscapes or, you know, stone walls or, you know, um, espalier, uh, things around or, uh, crazy water features. It's just a natural, um, there are lots of beautiful foundation plantings and I have really five beds that I call my own, but it's, it's very informal and, um, just nicely planted and, uh, casual and, although meticulously cleaned, it's, it's me. It's just, it's just easy. Yeah. It sounds like a a very, like the minute you say farmhouse garden that, you know, I sort of have a particular picture that comes to mind and, um, and there will be lots of pictures on the website from, from writer of her, her garden. So I have to ask, you know, you've, you've, you and your husband Michael and your daughter Lizzie have have kept the home and you have made it your own and you know you're the fifth generation what do you see happening with it in the future writer 
Well, we we have it was a huge success for us to have put this property on farmland preservation. It was something that we started before dad died and he knew that I was doing and the day it came through was one of the proudest days of my life. Yeah. My husband was for it, which was just tremendous of him. It was just so generous of him to do. And um, I know dad would have been just thrilled to know that this property cannot be built on for 100 years and um, no development will take place for at least 100 years. And it's really my hope in doing that, that young people will be able to see this old house and this beautiful piece of land and the hay that we're, we're creating and making and, and learn from that, 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 you know, nature's important and that old trees, old established trees, we have big Norway maple here. We have big buttonwood trees here. We have chokeberry trees. We have linden trees. We have mock orange and Osage orange, and they're old and they're, they're just huge that those are important things that, you know, plopping a house in the middle of nowhere with no plannings is, is not that, not that great. You know, this is, this is something that you should aspire to have. If you're going to plant a tree, plant it, let it go, plant another one, put another, you know, set of trees in that will give someone else after you some pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess, I guess that's, it's, it's a living thing. I think your property is a living member of your family and should be treated as such. Beautiful. Will you describe the process of doing your research on the New Jersey farmland land conservation and what you, what, what that entailed and what the specifics were. So you mentioned, you know, your husband being very generous and the fact that you cannot develop for a hundred years. So walk us, walk other listeners through like what that process was for you and what it, what you gave up in order to get that known benefit. What you give, give up really is money. Yeah. We have a very active land conservation, at least two of them in our area, that are helping to preserve agricultural land. And that balancing of you're going to give up the ability to sell your land for development and potential you know, income, but what you get is this thing. And it is right. priceless, right? It is priceless. Yeah. In, well, in our town, you, you start with um, going through the town itself. I called... Um, the New Jersey Land Conservation uh, Office in our town hall and started there with a girl named Beth and said, I would like to offer our acreage up for farmland conservation. And the process took five years. And it took a lot of lawyers. It took a lot of walkthroughs by the town and then the state and then, I uh, say the town, the state, who else? There were lots of different agencies that got involved and had to come up with the various monies together to offer to us. I know that I came up with myself, I came up with people around me who had sold acreage for a certain price. And then Beth would come to us with offers. Um, well, we're willing to give you X amount for per acre. And I'd say, well, Jerry down the road got X amount for his acreage. Why can't we get X amount for our acreage? And that kind of back and forth for, you know, a year or two. 
And eventually they, they came up with a decent enough offer that we accepted it. And then you go through a million other avenues and um, yes and no's and back and forth and this and that. And finally, you know, you settle and uh, sign off. But it took forever. And it, you know, we had so many people walking through this property and they measure every doorway, every house, every set of footprint in your driveway. Every, I have wonderful, huge documents of my property now, which are great. Overhead aerial views and, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for the town. We also happen to abut a neighbor who also gave their acreage. So it, it's great for the town because now they have a big, huge piece right. of land, right. you know, together. And more and more people are doing it. So, um, so uh, clarify for me, you basically sell the rights to your land to the, the state and this conservation land trust. And in return, you receive some amount of uh, cash money. And then you receive about a quarter of what a developer would pay you. Right. So you, you get a small amount of money now. You give up the right to get a large amount of money, but you protect the land from development. Thank you. Well said. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. do you, so what happens to Lizzie? Say Lizzie wants to live in this house in her generation. What are her rights in that situation? She, she owns the land. We still have, we still, anyone who buys this house owns the property as it is. Um, we still have to hay the fields to, to gain our farmland assessment. We still fertilize and pay for that. We still pay the poor farmer to take the hay away and sell it. Um, that's the deal we have with him. Um, Lizzie or anyone else that buys the house would do the same. Okay. The only thing that's different is that you cannot sell either one of the front or back fields, basically, uh, to build on. Uh, we have carved out a five-acre plot off the end of our big barn um, to build a riding ring or an indoor riding ring or a, a barn for, you know, um, someone to live to help on the farm. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And basically, I think... The other rule is that if you build a new house here, it pretty much has to stay in the footprint of this house. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can't just knock this down and put a McMansion here. Right. You have to stay within the footprint of the home. And then I believe you you also uh, participated with your home and garden in a Smithsonian project. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was great fun. I'm um, a member of our garden club here, a Zone 4 Garden Club um, in uh, the Somerset Hills Garden Club. And I was uh, chairman of the Garden History and Design Committee for seven years. And as part of that, we are encouraged to document gardens. And what that means is that um, you can pick either your own garden or a neighbor's garden or a park, a public place. Um, and take photographs and find who was the architect of that garden and call the, um, contact the American Archives of uh, the Archives of American Gardens at the Smithsonian Institute and ask them if they would like this particular place documented. And if they do, they will send you reams of paperwork and you go through it very slowly and you um, take pictures and 
write all the documentation down, um, and then you send it in, and they'll either accept it or not, and it's pretty much of a, a project. Yeah. Um, but right now, they have uh, currently documented 7,500 gardens in the United States, and they keep photographs and landscape plans along with extensive lists of hard and softscape materials from garden designers and architects dating from the 1920s forward. And they've utilized and archived these plans, drawings, letters, journal entries, and made them all accessible to writers and gardeners and researchers through their website. Wow. So it's, it's quite fun. I've been down there, actually, and gone and seen the, uh, the rooms where they archive these things. And yeah. it's, it's really amazing what they have down there. Say, for instance, you're a writer and you say, oh, I, I need some information on a farm garden. Where will I find that? And you type in Smithsonian Archives of American Gardens, farm farmland or farm garden, and up will pop all the farms that have pretty gardens and mine will be in there. And yours is officially called Cedar Ridge Farm. Cedar Ridge Farm, yeah. Okay. And um, the road uh, was owned owned by the farm was owned by a man named Grunwald before uh, my grandfather bought it. So the road was called Grunwald Road, and it was Grunwald Farm. And my grandfather came and said, "No, it's surrounded by cedar trees, so we're going to call it Cedar Ridge Road and Cedar Ridge Farm." <laughs> so that's what it was called. And are the cedars native there, Ryder? Yes, they're red cedars. They're all native. There are hundreds of them, thousands of them. You had asked about past. You had asked about challenges um, mm-hmm. and heartaches in the garden, and I think uh, for New Jersey, if one of the problems in the East Coast are, are, is clay soil, mm. you have sandier soil than we do. I think, right? Mm-hmm. So we have very heavy clay soil here, and water um, doesn't sink in. So we have a problem with growing uh, certain things, and also our cedars here in this area, of course, are very shallow rooted, so we lose them all the time. A big storm will just take one up and throw it right in the field. Um, so that's that's a problem. And losing trees for us is becoming a reality with this climate change because mm-hmm. these microbursts come along and whip through here like mini tornadoes and just snap branches off left and right. And it's, it's a huge concern because I will sit here at my kitchen and just watch branches fly. Yeah. And there's just there's nothing you can do about it. And it's, it's happening more and more often. And I, I am a huge proponent of managing climate change. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Ryder. With Father's Day approaching, it's nice to think you will have your father near. Ryder Zebarth is a writer and a gardener from Bedminster, New Jersey, which she likes to point out is also known as the Garden State. She has spent the last 21 years restoring, gardening, and writing on this farmstead that her grandparents purchased, her great-grandparents spent summers at, her father grew up on, and which her own daughter, Lizzie, now calls home. Like any gardener I know, Ryder has worked thoughtfully and diligently to steward this land on which she now has a five-generation legacy with her daughter. Further, her journey in now taking on this land with her husband became a many-year project shared between she and her father, who died just after they got the land remaining with the farmstead officially protected from development for the next 100 years through a New Jersey land trust. 
I think of the things we take with us in our travels through life, the stories, the emotions, the values, and even the tangible objects. And I can see Ryder sitting on that bench given to her by her father and her mother under the chestnut tree that was planted before her and will outlive her. And I am reminded of Ryder's own words from some point in the interview. Quote, the land on which you live is a living member of your family and needs to be treated as such, end quote. The people who have grown us as gardeners are part of every garden we cultivate, whether they are there to see them or not. I think her father would be proud, don't you? Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy cultivating place and value these conversations about gardens and natural history, please consider supporting the cause. Subscribe to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher. Give the podcast a rating and a review at iTunes. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value these topics too. And thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.